We're just a few days away from the end of 2016, which for a lot of people couldn't come soon enough. But regardless of your precise point of view on the kind of year this has been, it has unquestionably been eventful. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll take a look back at the impact of the past 12 months, including election season, and where we go from here. What is there to be pessimistic about, optimistic about? How will our communities and cultures be affected heading into 2017? To talk about those big issues, I'll be joined by writers John Gabriel, Gloria Notero, and Robert Pela. Gabriel is an editor of Ricochet.com. Notero is a journalist and best-selling author. Pela has written for a number of publications and is a longtime KJZZ commentator and critic. Plus, we'll revisit a couple of our favorite conversations from 2016 with Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Lindsay Adario, whose autobiography will soon be adapted to the big screen by Steven Spielberg, and legendary musician Herb Alpert. Here and Now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, we'll mark the end of 2016 with a couple of our favorite interviews from the past 12 months, Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Lindsay Adario and legendary musician Herb Alpert. We start today's program by considering some of the major national events of 2016 and how they may affect our communities and culture in 2017. That will include, of course, election season and Donald Trump's victory and the race to become the next U.S. president. But we'll do our best to talk about a lot of other things, including writing and philosophy and journalism and celebrities and all that sort of stuff. And I'll be doing that with best-selling author Lori Natero. Her latest book is Crossing the Horizon, a work of historical fiction about some very talented and interesting female pilots. Also here is writer and longtime KJZZ commentator and critic Robert Pela. He's also a contributor to Phoenix Magazine. Our third panelist is John Gabriel, editor-in-chief of Ricochet.com and a contributor to the Arizona Republic and AZ Central. Welcome to you all. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Thanks. So, Lori, let me start off with uh, the death of Carrie Fisher. From this context, I think that we're seeing so much reaction to people, and part of it is the special place she holds for people for many reasons, starting off with as Princess Leia when many of us were little kids and then moving on to an expansive range. How do you mark her passing? But also, why do you think we have this... So many of us have this relationship with people on the big screen, small screen, that just we feel this connection even if we never actually meet them. You know, I think Carrie Fisher held, I can speak for myself, um, and my husband too, was one of those 10-year-old boys who watched Star Wars and never really got over it, you know. So, But for me, Carrie Fisher was probably the first woman in my lifetime that I saw who really went out there and kicked butt and took names as her character as Princess Leia. And that was a really strong influence on me. And then later on, she went on to be this wonderful humorist, um, a very saucy woman, very angry at her dad. I'll never forget the, yeah, some interviews I, I saw about her talking about her father, which is not pleasant. But I thought she really has the guts to go out there and just say exactly what she means. And I I always felt that someday I would meet her. And and I'm very, very sad. I don't know where our paths would have crossed, but I, I just wanted to say, God, I love you. And you're exactly who I want to be. <laughs> Drugs, booze, and all. I really want to emulate everything that you've done. <laughs> so I think for, for women, especially my age, she was, she was a really good role model and a very good archetype to follow. And she showed us that, yeah, I'm in charge of all these guys up here mm-hmm. and look at what I can do. I think that's awesome. And guys, whether about Carrie Fisher or something broader, what about the celebrity attachment we have? I think a lot of it has to do with the place that celebrities or television shows that get canceled or go off the air uh, hold for us. They're markers of time mm-hmm. that mattered or matter to us. So 
Uh, if you are a, a, an obsessive fan of the Mary Tyler Moore show from the middle 70s, it might also, it, it might not just be because it's a brilliantly written and very well acted show, but also because you remember how lovely it was to be 12 and not have a job and not have a lot of responsibilities <laughs> other than your homework and getting to bed on time. And so there's a there's there's always a personal, uh, I think, element to loving Carrie Fisher or, for me, Patty Duke. You know, Patty Duke died of sepsis. Uh, that doesn't happen all that often. At a young age as well, yeah. 69. And, you know, I think she still had another 10, 15 years as a character actor in her. And um, and maybe she died because she lives lived in Idaho where, uh, you know, I mean, if you live in a big city, it's easier to get to the ER when, when you have a, a, an internal infection than it is wherever she was living in, mm-hmm. in you know, out in the boonies. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think the biggest effect for me is always musicians. And I think there's just an emotional connection when I was a kid, like – especially all young boys in the late 70s, early 80s, going to see every Star Wars movie. So you have that emotional connection. And for me, it was just musicians. And this year started with the news that uh, Lemmy Kilmeister <laughs> passed away, then followed by David Bowie. And it just went on and on. And it seemed like every month, another great musician. Towards the end, you had Leonard Cohen. So all these people who, even though I've never met any of them, you feel an emotional connection because they kind of stir up those emotions in you. And it just makes it a lot more personal. You know, 100 years ago, you'd only have that kind of connection with family or friends or people in your neighborhood. And now it's just with the mass media. You feel it for these people you never have met. Well, and Robert, even what you mentioned makes me feel think about the whole retro thing because uh, my wife and I tend to watch mostly old TV now and probably because of that feeling. And it's they're not as good as we remembered, by the way. Yeah. But <laughs> that, Project that, is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is, that is the... Uh, the caveat there is Laverne and Shirley might not be so funny in the early 21st century as you remember it. You know, I did meet Leonard Cohen, and um, and he was that rarest of things in a celebrity. Uh, he was as magnificent in the moment as you, I, I, I feel like if you, if you met him in passing at the grocery store, you would come away with a life-changing <laughs> moment. And, uh, yeah, that was a tough one for a lot of people. And we're all basically in the same generation. So when we hear, was anybody at this table, and maybe I'm just too square or something, but I was really amazed when Prince passed, how uh, how everyone seemed to recognize his greatness, even people who were maybe much older than he. Um, you know, based on Leonard Cohen, Prince, George Michael, even David Bowie, uh, is there one of those that feels like the biggest impact any of you? Oh, David Bowie, certainly, yeah. Because uh, Robert and I are about the same age, and John and I, we are all about the same age. I'm, I'm in my 50s now. So David Bowie was very, very instrumental in my burgeoning punk rock, kind of identifying my musical place in this world when I was in high school and, and in my 20s. So that was really a big thing. And, of course, I had a major crush on David Bowie, so that, that didn't help matters eh? Is music, though, even when it comes to the way that we use music, obviously people go to concerts, but um, if you, especially these days in earbuds and headphones, do we, are we as public with that? Like if we go see a movie and we're all sort of seeing Star Wars together or maybe TV is a little bit more private, is there something different about the way we feel about music, perhaps? Talking about David Bowie. I mean, can't, music is universal in the sense that a lot of people like the same artists, but unless you're at a concert together, you don't really listen together. Maybe in the car listening on the radio or in your room listening on the earbuds. Does that change anything for anybody? 
John, you sort of say that's an intimate thing for yeah, you. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting. One thing about all these artists, you feel like you're seeing the passing of the last generation that did have that communal mm-hmm. aspect of culture. Uh, you know, when we were all in high school, someone appeared on uh, with a musical guest on Saturday Night Live. Everybody was buzzing about them. They were terrible. They were great. Can you believe what they did? And now you don't have that. Now it's you're looking at a YouTube video at one in the morning, and eh, I guess it's a pretty good band, and you're done, and you tell your friends, like, what are you talking about? I have no idea. So um, you do this shared culture is fading, and this year was especially tough because it was one hit after another a few years ago when Johnny Cash passed away. That hit me. I was in a funk for a month, but that's because he was my dad's thing. My dad would sit on the end of the bed, play his guitar, play Johnny Cash songs for hours. And so that was like a piece of my childhood gone. Now now that I'm a bit older, I feel like, no, 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 Prince, I grew up with him. That's, mm. that's not fair. <laughs> yeah. That's not right. He can't go yet. You know, you talk about, about it not being fair. At least Prince and Leonard Cohen and certainly David Bowie had had reached iconic status and had been celebrated in a very exemplary way. George Michael, our most recent mm-hmm. musical death, um, had not yet acquired that that burnished sheen to his career where we were looking back. And I can't speak. I I, I kind of vaguely remember his hit records on the, but he did a he did a great deal for commercial uh, music and wrote some standards mm-hmm. some which is also very rare and didn't get to live long enough to the point where somebody was doing a documentary about how brilliant he was or um you know i think he was actually working on a show with hbo about his own life yeah i think it was actually in in not not post production but i think they were working on it wow. at at that time Right now, yeah. Now, our, our, our producer, Sarah Ventry, is, uh, is saying that there's a lot of stuff happening on a mass scale right now. Everything, everyone's talking about things. Shared culture is more because people can see a favorite band playing a show overseas on Facebook Live. Maybe we just haven't embraced uh, <laughs> social media the way we all should. You know, <laughs> we're, we're in this very peculiar, pe- peculiar transitional period where music and photography are concerned because it used to be that if you wanted the new Linda Ronstadt album, you went to the store and you bought a 12-inch disc and you took it home and everybody had the same 10 songs in the same order. And today, CDs are passe. And what is an MP3 exactly? I get to take out the songs I don't care for. I get to change the order of the the, the songs that the producer uh, lined up. It's very, very personal, as you said, and, and also distinctly different because of that. Now, all of you are writers, and you're writers in different ways these days. Do you find, John, first of all, do you find that, that writing online is somewhat different than the columns you're, you're putting in the Republic? Do you modify any of those from online? Does AZ Central have a different audience than the hard copy of the paper, for example? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think they're very different audiences. Um, when you're writing for uh, the web, it's a very transient thing. It's not something people are going to have a hard copy of to turn back to. And um, so I just make sure I, I kind of, um, to be completely pretentious, I look at a lot of when I try to do a deep dive on the web, it's like intellectual prototyping almost. It's like, hey, let me throw this out here and get your comments to see if I'm full of it or this makes this actually has a good point here. Mm-hmm. And half the time I'm full of it. And the other half, it's like, oh, OK, I can develop this and write something more about it later. But when you write for the print medium, you know, and 
it's kind of odd I started out. My first uh, famed career was as a paperboy for the Arizona Republic. And now writing for them, um, I, I feel like, oh, wow, this is an actual physical specimen that I it'll be, you know, noted for the ages. And that obviously doesn't happen as much as it once did. But um, I try to be a little more bulletproof when I'm writing for them. And, Lori, in writing books, do you find that you have to start off writing for yourself? I mean, You've written historical fiction recently. Mm-hmm. You're known very well for being a best-selling humorist over the years. So does that change how you approach it? I mean, you, do you find yourself in a room writing and trying to, to write stories that people can relate to? How, do, how different is it from writing what would be a daily column, for example? Well, you know, I wrote the daily column for the Arizona Republic and Easy Central, which was basically what I'm kind of still doing. But I, I, I get to experiment more and and put more of myself in there and just really kind of say things that I certainly couldn't say in the paper. But what I'm finding now is that the publish industry, publishing industry is changing so quickly um, and not in a good way. And in fact, I think I'm going to be taking a step back from publishing for a while. Um, and I've been told by an editor point blank that at, at um, one of the, the biggest house in the world that she is no longer allowed to buy any book that isn't by a celebrity or a surefire blockbuster. So where does that leave us? Mm-hmm. You're going to be reading a lot about um, Nikki Six, I guess. Good luck with that. That's awesome. But as far as midlist authors and, and literature, I see a very bleak future for that. So you're um, saying if I want to write a book, I should change my last name to King and be Stephen I, King and just confuse a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Or just, you know, yeah. Or <laughs> yeah, you could just write under the name Adele. You know, you could do that as well. But um, yeah, I, I think that the industry is changing. So even the standards when I was writing something are now changing so quickly and so fast. Um, and I think that's just a complete reflection of not only the culture we're in, but also the election was a very good mirror back on our culture. You know, it showed us exactly what we were interested in. And that was reality TV. And that's t- kind mm-hmm. of scary for me. And we'll talk a lot more about that coming up with Lori Natero, John Gabriel, and Robert Pela as we wrap up 2016. Look ahead to 2017 on KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks for being with us. When you make contributions to the organizations that are important to you before the end of the year, please consider KJZZ. Listener support is the heart and soul of KJZZ. Make your tax-deductible gift online at kjzz.org. Thank you. And you're listening to Here and Now with Steve Goldstein on KJZZ. NPR's Here and Now is at noon, and at 1, it's BBC News Hour. Checking traffic, it's pretty clear, but on the 60 westbound at Superstition Springs, there's still a crash on the shoulder. Looking at weather, expect a high today of 69 with partly cloudy skies. Tonight, a low of 51, and tomorrow, a high all the way up to 75. Right now in Flagstaff, it's partly cloudy and it's 41. And here in Phoenix, overcast skies and it's 55 degrees at 1120. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with Robert Pala, John Gabriel, and Lori Natero about 2016 and what's to come potentially in 2017. So, Robert, we left off with Lori mentioning... Donald Trump. I promised we wouldn't talk about it much, but now apparently is the time. So uh, from a standpoint of how the election season went and what has come of it, um, do you think people are more alarmed about Trump's victory and perhaps 
certain percentage of his supporters that people are perhaps a little bit scared of to some extent, to be totally noncommittal in my comment right there, um, is part of it because of the contrast of in the Obama administration, at least people who were from a more diverse background felt like, all right, here's someone who is diverse. Is it more that people are worried about what is to come, it is unknown, or is it more because they think it's going to contrast so much of the, with the last eight years? I think it's both of those okay. things. I think for progressives and liberals, we spent the last four, six, eight years um, saying, at last, our our idea of a larger universe and a and a and a kinder, gentler universe is is a reality, is becoming a reality. Mm-hmm. And there was this level of grace in the White House that certainly um, burnished that thinking and, and those politics. And now we are seeing the absolute flip side of that heading straight for us. We are standing in the middle of a freeway and this woman-hating racist is barreling toward us. And it's, it can't be good. I don't really think he'll take office in the next day and announce, hey, I was only kidding. Can, can it be possible, just to play devil's advocate, that he can be a terrible person and a racist, as many people would call him, but also not be a bad president. <laughs> I'll, yeah, sure, of course. No, because there are many people who would say that President Obama and his family, very classy, very smart people, maybe not that effective a president. If we look at just the actual... Yeah, who's going to say that? Who in this room is going to say well, that? Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, this guy. Why maybe. don't you people want to make America great again? That's uh, all there I'm you are. Mm-hmm. You know what I worry about, though? Uh I worry about the middle Americans who who voted for this guy because they really thought he was going to reinvigorate the coal industry and open the steel mills again. Now, the four of us are disappointed by our president and we write, write and publish a screed or we go to a salon and we bitch about it with our friends. I think people who are angry that the coal in, coal industry hasn't revived are going to set fire to things. I don't think they're going to sit down and write a thoughtful essay mm-hmm. about how disappointed they are. That's my concern. Okay. And I know how that sounds, but really. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think uh, just looking at how the left and much of the middle has been just wringing their hands over Donald Trump um, as a former Republican, thanks to Trump, I uh, I kind of went through that already. I went through my Kubler-Ross stages of grief, and so I'm done with that. And I'm like, why are these people freaking out? Of course he's a. Of course he's. Well, Donald Trump is acting like Donald Trump. I'm not shocked when he tweets some dumb thing because I'm like, well, yeah, that's who he's been. Um, but I did spend, you know, six months earlier. I was like, has everybody lost their mind? What? How is this guy even on a debate stage, let alone running away with this thing? So, um, yeah, it does say, as Laurie had mentioned early, just about our culture, our reality show culture. Uh, the debates weren't about, oh, okay, that's an interesting plan for Social Security. It was, oh, snap, he didn't say that. That's awesome. You know, it was like a Real Housewives episode. And, oh, did you see what he said to her? Oh, what, what did she say back? Let's share some gifs from this. So it is, you know, I, I don't want to be, I'm already, you know, getting to be the old fuddy-duddy, get off my lawn, but it is, okay, could you, let's do some reading about the policies behind this and make sure this is the guy that you want. Well, so why did this happen then, John? If we think about it, um, were there a lot of people that didn't get polled? Were there a lot of people who just really are drawn to the idea of this guy is larger than life and the other people we've had are boring? I, I think the the latter is a lot of it. I think those people weren't exactly polled. It's tough to do polling now just with cell phones and, you know, if the phone rings and I don't recognize the number, I don't answer it. And I'm sure a lot of people are like that. He also had the passion on his side because even many of the Hillary supporters 
who were voting for her were kind of like, eh, okay, I'll vote for her. And Trump people were like, no, uh, because I've talked to thousands of these true believers. And no, he is going to make America great again by building a wall and starting a trade war with China. That's our solution. And we'll bring back coal and steel and uh, be shipbuilding in uh, Philadelphia again. So, Laura, what do individual people and communities do? Because it's now that the vote is officially going to be president in a few, in a few weeks. Um, we still have weeks. We still have like at least 21 days. <laughs> but so if you're someone who's concerned in your community, you're not going to, the guy's not going to be impeached. He's going to take office. Um, so what would someone who's concerned about it do at a, at a local level? This is what level? I think is, is, is that, listen, if I could have applied for like election-based depression for disability, I would have totally done that. But that's not a category. <laughs> I think we all stopped working for we're still not working. Um, but what I think is is that there's not only there's not only a silver lining to this debacle, there's a golden lining. And what that means is that we have to remember there are more of us than there are of them. And and I hate to put it in those terms, but that's basically where we are right now. Mm. She won the popular vote. That means there's more people who are progressive, liberal, and want a more caring, gentler society that is inclusive and includes everyone. We're all concerned. Um, and if that means being a Democrat and that's a bad word, then I'm a bad word. But what I see is an opportunity for everyone to get up and stop being complacent. Your country is now smoldering. What are you going to do about it? This is time for everyone to get up and be active. What I want to see in this administration is the golden age of activism, where everyone pitches in. I'm trying to get my nephews involved. I'm trying to get my neighbors involved. I've started a now chapter up in Eugene, Oregon, which had been defunct for almost a decade because we were fine with Obama in office. Women were not afraid to necessarily lose their rights so quickly. Um, now we're really on the line. Now things are very dangerous for us. So, um, and, there, and I'm not the only one. When I, our first meeting, we're going to have, I, I'm guessing about 150 people there when I go back to Oregon. Not, so it's, yeah. yeah, it's not just us. This is the time for everyone to get up and spend a little bit of extra energy. You, you volunteer at the ACLU. You go to move dot, you know, moveon.org. And you do those things and you get your country back. Not to get too specifically political, because I think let's move on from this show. But I was thinking back as someone who, who looks back at election history and when most of us were very, very young, some political experts I've spoken to compare this to 1968 to 1972. So does a Donald Trump then lead to a ultra pro, an ultra progressive someone in 2020 that no one can vote for because the person is too left? And then we end up with someone like Jimmy Carter. <laughs> I don't think Jimmy Carter was that bad of a president, no. to tell you the truth. No, he was a good um, public servant. <laughs> I think he's a, a brilliant, a fine human smart being. Man. No question about that. Right, but. right, right. Um, I think that we will see a backlash, just like we saw a backlash with Obama, with um, with many people feeling disenfranchised um, that weren't of the quote unquote elite. Um, and I don't even know what that means, honestly. I just don't even know what that means. But I think that, that those felt that they were left behind and wanted to make America great again. I don't know when America's really stopped being great. Um, I don't know when that happened. It's, America is still great. It is still the best country in this world. So I don't really know if you want to turn back the wheels of time and go back to McCarthyism. But honestly, I don't see this as the 1968 or 1972. I see this as 1938. And we're in Berlin. That's what I see. Okay. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with Laurie Natero, Robert Pela, and John Gabriel. And on that fun note, let's move to... 
a uh, someone who very very famous local politician who lost after many many victories, and that is Sheriff Joe Arpaio. John, what does that reflect about? Does it reflect anything about this community in terms of how they're viewing diversity, how they're viewing inclusiveness, whatever it may be, or is it just that people thought, "Well, we've kind of had enough of him and his lawsuits." Yeah, or uh, we've all grown tired of uh, seeing pink underwear. I'm, I'm not sure what exactly. But uh, Jor Pio um, is someone, a very divisive figure, and just always, basically, if you ever want to be in the most dangerous place in Phoenix, get between Jor Pio and a camera. It was kind of the old joke about him, and I thought people got tired of his a- antics because it wasn't about doing his job. It was about getting press for Jor Pio um, with all the federal lawsuits against him. With all the complaints of people in the jail, uh, people who are not even convicted yet, um, some dying in custody, many being abused in custody, I think the community in general had had enough of him. And when you just saw his sweeps, I used to drive to an office and I would drive down Guadalupe Road and go through the very small community of Guadalupe. And every month or so, he would have his vans there and helicopters swooping down, um, just basically harassing the residents for no reason. And this community has been here before Arizona was a state. Um, If anybody is the interloper in this situation, it's Joe Arpaio, not these people. And I think just this heavy-handed, ugly People got tired of it. You had the whole uh, immigration wars locally here several years ago, and I think uh, the community has moved on from it and are just like, okay, let's get our act together. Um, This guy is an embarrassment, and we don't want to support him anymore. So, Robert, is he going to fade away, or because a lot of people consider him some kind of a character, is he going to show up on some of these Sunday morning TV shows as a pundit or something like that? I hope he quickly becomes the punchline to a joke and stays there. Yeah, no, we I, we don't want to see him evolve into something else where he has any uh, access to any kind of power. Anything to add to what John had to say? Do you think this indicates anything about the changing voting populace here? Or was it just because it seemed that the numbers we saw indicated that it's because a lot of Republicans turned against him, not because we really saw that Latino turnout? No, it was the Latino turnout. And that means that brown people are interested in saving their own communities and protecting their own communities. And that was something that was missing in the last election. There was a deep, uh, there, there was unaware, they were, they were unaware of what the election meant to them in many cases. That's a, a wide brush to generalize with, but uh, yeah, no, they, that, that, the brown people showed up this time and said, no more of this. This is our community as well. And Lori, no more green baloney, no more pink underwear. I know. <laughs> have, you, have you missed this being in Oregon? <laughs> There's enough of Oregon. We have people taking over, you know, nature preserves and things like that and causing $6 million of damage. But um, <laughs> I don't miss Joe Arpaio. I don't, I'm not sure who will. You know, my, my parents probably will. They really liked him. But um, oh, no. it was, yeah, it was a sideshow, which is exactly what Trump is. It's a sideshow. It's, it's smoke and mirrors. Um, and there's some fireworks. And I, I, it's, there, it's a bright, shiny object. And it, I think that's what people were, were attracted to and liked his he, – he was a, a busker. We've got a few minutes left. Now, John, this is going to go – I'm going to go off script entirely just very briefly because the ricochet.com, which you're the editor-in-chief of, I don't know, would we describe it as conservative, libertarian? I'm not sure. Yeah, center, center right, I would say. But – Pat Sajak writing col- what what I'm watching Wheel of Fortune and Pat Sajak is writing columns what's going on Pat Sajak yes uh, not to brag everybody but we got this new artist <laughs> on our roster Pat Sajak who wanted to uh, vent his spleen about um, he is kind of it's kind of interesting because he uh, is a bit older than all of us and he's kind of looking at the world going huh 
what exactly just happened? So it was kind of a fun column, and we like to uh, Dana Gould, who's a comedian, definitely on the progressive side. We've had him write for us before, too, uh, post-election going, what the heck just happened? So there's been a lot of these year-end articles, people just trying to figure out what's going on, and in the comments kind of mixing mixing it up, which is a lot of fun. A few minutes ago, we were talking about retro TV, though, and Chuck Woolery, former Wheel of Fortune host, is also this conservative. I mean, is there... I haven't heard Alex Trebek's comments about anything, so I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm waiting for. So I'm kind of in the wilderness until we hear from Wink Martindale. (laughs) So last few minutes left. I'm not asking for predictions because this is not this kind of show. But, Robert, anything you're looking forward to in 2017, Um, whether it's from this community, whether it's in the arts, anything that is, uh, you know, other than Trump being impeached? Can we... (laughs) I am not looking forward to the potential deregulation of architecture and geology and uh, des- and landscape architect, which is we understand uh, on the horizon and which would completely gut and kill a very important industry here. We will lose that industry. Builders and developers who come to Arizona to put up another high rise will say, let's don't hire an architect from Arizona because they're no longer they don't need to be licensed anymore. Let's hire someone from Colorado, hmm. and we're going to lose that income, and our industry will be will be harmed by that. Uh, I'm also looking forward to seeing what happens with the gentrification of the arts district downtown. Roosevelt Row is less and less affordable hmm. to small galleries and to artist studios and the little boutiques that have sort of made that uh, neighborhood what it what it's been recently it'll be interesting to see where they go to or if they just go away which would be bad John what about you um, I one thing that's been good to see growing up in this community since I was six years old we moved here um, is just seeing how downtown has changed before it was just you know tumbleweeds rolling through after 5 30 p.m. and to see it lively is great but there is kind of this gentrification <laughs> effect where uh, you kind of like the shady clubs that uh, you've heard about only because your friend told you about it to see some underground band. Um, so a lot of that's changing. So I, I really hope uh, one problem with Phoenix has always been this kind of uh, an authenticity thing and not just trying to replicate Williamsburg in uh, downtown Phoenix. So I, I'm really hoping for more local culture. You get that in spades in Tucson, for instance. You, when you're in Tucson, okay, I'm in Arizona. I'm in. <laughs> this is a different place. Uh, Phoenix, you're kind of like, eh, I could be in Dallas or Miami or D.C. or whatever. So um, one thing I would like to see is just the local involvement and uh, getting getting people more involved to, to have a little bit of culture. And Lori, about a minute left. What are you looking forward to here or in Oregon? You know, in general, what I'm looking forward to is that when people, um, when politics aren't going great, that's when our arts flourish. That's when the best art is made. And that is what I'm looking forward to. That's what I, that's what I hope is going to happen because, I don't know, we've had some good art but not great art mm. lately. So let's hope for that and let's hope that everyone feels the need to get active in their community and come together. And if you want to affect change, it's within your grasp. You can do it. You just have to get up and make a phone call or find a meeting or people like you and we can do this. Want to give us a brief uh, scoop on what your next book's going to be about? My next book um, is hopefully going to be about an infamous Phoenix figure um, who committed a murder and made some very bad plans afterwards with body parts. 
<laughs> try to piece those together. Lori Natero, her latest book is Crossing the Horizon, a work of historical fiction. We also had KJZZ commentator and critic Robert Pala. And our third panelist was John Gabriel, editor-in-chief of Ricochet.com. You can find his stuff in the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Thanks to all of you for looking back at 2016 with me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Thank you. for here and now. Still to come on Here and Now, we'll chat with Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Lindsay Adario. Stay with us. Hey, did you know there's a podcast of the show? Yeah, just download the KJZZ app for your phone, swipe the bottom toolbar to get podcasts, and there you can hear the show, KJZZ's Here and Now, and who knows, maybe even some new podcasts. It's all on the KJZZ mobile app. Check it out. And it's Here and Now with Steve Goldstein on KJZZ. Checking your forecast, expect a high today of 72 degrees with partly cloudy skies. Tonight, a low of 54. Tomorrow, sunny with a high of 72, but we're going to cool all the way down to a high of just 59 by Sunday. We've got partly cloudy skies across the state. In Flagstaff, it's 41 degrees. In Tucson, it's 57 degrees. And here in Phoenix, 59 at 1138. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. In Phoenix, I'm Steve Goldstein. And now we're going to share a couple of our favorite interviews from 2016 with you. The U.S. sent soldiers into Afghanistan and Iraq 15 years ago. And since then, the so-called Arab Spring occurred with dramatic leadership changes in places like Egypt and Libya. Meanwhile, the civil war in Syria rages on. Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Lindsay Adario has been on the ground in many of those places, documenting the stories through her camera lens. She and colleagues were even kidnapped in Libya, but she continues to travel to dangerous locales for her job. As the title of her autobiography plainly put it, it's what I do. Lindsay Adaria was in the Valley in the fall as part of the National Geographic Speaker Series. I started the conversation by asking her about how she got started in journalism. So, let's see, I started photographing when I was about 12 years old, and I never really took it seriously. I thought it could only be a hobby, and I wasn't familiar with other photojournalists as a young woman. And I studied international relations and Italian at University of Wisconsin, and after graduating, all I wanted wanted to do was photograph. So I moved to Argentina to study Spanish and and try to photograph. And there I sort of became aware of pictures in the newspaper. And that's when I realized that photojournalism was this perfect marriage between photography and telling stories. And did you have that feeling inside at an early age, knowing that the mundane aspects of a nine-to-five job or something were not going to work for you? You know, I come from a really unconventional family. I was raised by hairdressers. Uh, we're four sisters. We're all artists. We're all creative. And our parents always said to us, do what you love. Do what makes you happy. Don't worry about money. The money will come. And so, you know, having those, uh, having their voice in my ear all growing up, it, I just, I knew I would never do something very conventional. Mm-hmm. You've probably heard this a lot. I'm really struck by the dangerous places that you've been. And I know with what you do, I think there are some people who wonder, is there some kind of adrenaline rush? Is this? And obviously, in your case, that's not why you do it. But how do you get yourself ready physically and mentally to have gone back to places, even though you know your job is important, to keep doing that over and over again? Is there a particular 
sense of having to steal yourself, or is this just your personality, your character? Well, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, it's definitely my personality, my character. I'm very driven and very dedicated, um, and sometimes to a point where I am tortured by them, by my own dedication. Um, I think a lot of people ask me, are you fearless? Is it is it that you're so fearless that you can go to these places? And that, to me, is not at all the case. In fact, when I'm preparing to go to a war zone or to a place where I know my life will be in danger, I'm overcome with fear. I mean, I'm often paralyzed by that fear as I'm packing, as I'm preparing my, my things to go. Um, but I have to sort of manage that. I have to think about why am I scared? Uh, what is that grounded in? What are the actual risks of, uh, you know, in the place that I'm going? And how do I manage that? So for me, it's really about recognizing the fear, recognizing why I'm going, identifying the fact that I feel I need to cover this story for X reason. And so I'm talking myself through that process. And in order to do your job as well as you have, there has to be a certain level of freedom. But in doing that, do you somehow give up some of your safety? Because obviously, I mean, I presume you're not going to say, or the New York Times or National Geographic is not going to say to the military, listen, you need to make sure Lindsay is protected here. I mean, because that's obviously not how things work. So how do you balance the idea of getting the story, telling the important stories with thinking about your safety, your freedom, everything else? I mean, that's obviously the hardest balance to achieve because the best stories um, that I've ever done um, are generally the most dangerous um, and where I've taken extraordinary risks. And so I think it's not to advocate being reckless, but certainly uh, there are calculated risks that I can take and and take with my colleagues. And a lot of that has to do with talking through a story, um, speaking with the translator, the fixer, who is the local journalist on the ground or whoever we're working with. Um, also talking with other colleagues who might have done similar stories and figuring out, is it completely reckless or is there a way to do this safely? Um, I'm watching as, you know, on the plane here, I was reading all about Mosul and, and the invasion into Mosul. And of course, I'm tortured that I'm not there. You know, that's a story that um, I, over the last 16 years, I would have been right there on the front lines and I'm not. So I'm, I'm looking at my colleagues' work. I'm looking at where they're positioned. Um, I'm I'm trying to figure out, you know, where I would be in that equation. Now, is the story for you about telling the important story in the the bigger sense, the macro sense of what's going on as far as how villages are affected, how natives are affected, whatever it may be in a particular country? Or are you looking to find that sort of personal story in the middle of it, that one person, that one family who's affected? What sort of photos do you think tell the story the best? So I think it's a combination. I think obviously in some, like a a huge story like the invasion of Mosul, um, it, obviously the bigger picture is very important. It's very important to show sort of the push towards the city. Um, But then my forte is sort of what I'm best at is getting those very personal, intimate stories. So, of course, I would be looking for uh, men and women or particularly women, women and children who have fled recently, who are fleeing from these villages, what experiences they've had under under ISIS's regime. Um, So I think the personal stories are really the stories that affect uh, the readers and the viewers 
members back here and back home. And how do you gain the trust of, of the individual sort of normal folks you're meeting? It depends. I mean, some people understand the value of journalism and understand that journalists are very important to carry their message to the rest of the world. And so those are sort of the easy cases. Um, in situations where people are more skeptical of journalists, where they're um, a bit more guarded, it takes time. I mean, I have to really sit down, explain who I am, why I want their confidence, why I think it's important to tell their story, and I have to hope that they believe me. And as an American, how does that affect it? It's tough. I mean, there are. I work mostly in the Middle East and Africa, and a lot of people have been very disillusioned by U.S. foreign policy overseas and in the countries in which I work. And so, I have to say, look, I'm I'm here to tell your story. I'm not, you know, I don't work for the government. I'm not. I, I'm not a proponent of our foreign policy. I I'm strictly a messenger. I'm a journalist. And how about being a woman? It's a, you know, a lot of people ask me, is it, you know, is it a hindrance being a woman? No, absolutely not. I think it's a great benefit. Uh, it's helped me a lot because my gender um, gives me access to men and women. And so, you know, the only time that it was difficult or it has been difficult being a woman um, were when I was imbe- embedded with the military, the U.S. military in very tough places. And I'm five feet one. Um, if I were jumping irrigation ditches or having to to climb, you know, mountains 7,000 feet for hours at a time. I had to be very physically prepared for that. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist Lindsay Adario. Is it okay considering the line of work you are in for people who love you to worry about you? Or do you say, I don't need that kind of burden. You've, you know who I am. You love me for this reason. I mean, of course it's okay. I, I, you know, I worry about my friends who are war correspondents. You know, when I'm not in a place, I'm terrified for my friends. I'm always scared that I'll be getting that call in the middle of the night from one of my editors saying, you know, something has happened to X or Y. And so, you know, I, I think, of course, my family and loved ones will worry about me, but I wish they wouldn't. You know, I, I hate to put that burden on them. And so I often don't tell people where I'm going until I'm back. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I definitely don't tell my parents anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the average American may be missing, even with the coverage they've seen of yours or the New York Times or other national, international outlets, about what goes on in the Middle East and how, how the U.S. relates or how the U.S. is seen there? I think um, a lot of people, what happens in a lot of these war zones, and and I am a culprit of this as well, is that we we go directly to uh, the center of the conflict. And we and I, as a photographer, you go to the, I go to the most dramatic scenes. I'm covering the front line. I'm covering, you know, I try to cover how war affects civilians. Um, But at the same time, those are the most dramatic images and also the heart of the story. I think it's also important to cover sort of the daily life and when nothing's really happening. I mean, for in every war zone, there's also a section of the city generally uh, where life goes on. I think what we're missing uh, in the U.S. As, as readers, as consumers of news, is the incredibly positive side of the Middle East. I mean, you know, I, yes, I've been kidnapped twice. I've been kidnapped in Iraq. I've been kidnapped in Libya. But I have also been afforded the most incredible hospitality in the Middle East. People have opened their homes to me. They've fed me. They've given me shelter. They have been wonderful. And so I think it's also important to recognize that. 
And Lindsay, briefly to close, um, when you're doing interviews like this or when you're at home, you said you enjoyed writing the book, but do you do you still have that, do you always sort of have that wanderlust ready to go out to find that story, as you mentioned? You know, I, I do and I don't. I think I have a son who's almost five years old, so I um, still am on the road all the time. But when I'm home, I have to really be present for him. And and so I try to just make the most out of the days I'm home and, and um, yeah, and enjoy myself. That's Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Lindsay Adario, one of our favorite interviews from 2016. Her autobiography, It's What I Do, will soon be a major motion picture put together by Steven Spielberg. I had the chance to talk with Adario in October. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The music of legendary trumpet player Herb Alpert is instantly recognizable, especially from his time as a hitmaker with the Tijuana Brass in the 1960s. Tomorrow, Alpert turns 81 years old. He and his wife, singer Lonnie Hall, will be in the Valley for three shows at the Musical Instrument Museum on Sunday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. The concerts will focus on Alpert's most recent album, Come Fly With Me. Alpert joined me from his home in Southern California just a few minutes after doing his morning trumpet practice. Herb, your music still has a real cool sound to it that's easy to listen to. Does that come naturally to you? It is natural because I I try really, really hard not to affect anything. I just want it to be, you know, come out naturally and express what I'm feeling. So uh, if it's cool, it's cool. Sometimes I get a little, you know, a rougher, but uh, on that particular cut, probably that whole album, yeah, it is kind of cool. I'm in a cool period of my life. Did art come easily to you? Is is that something where you're born with or you have to really work at it? I think that the combination of both. You know, I'm, I'm um, 85% on the right side of my brain, so I paint. I've been painting for, you know, many, many, many years and sculpt and make music, and that's what I really love to do. It's a passion of mine. I just, you know, I'm, I'm one of those lucky guys that get to, and I get to follow my passion. 
Well, does the popularity matter to you? I mean, the fact that you have been so popular for so long, is that is something you'd want to do regardless of how successful you've been? I, I didn't really go for that. You know, I was just going for making good records. I had, um, you know, a lot of good people surrounding me, and uh, I had a big aha when I was working, uh, watching the great Sam Cooke in 1957. I was privy to all those records that he made and became friends with him, and he used to tell me, Herbie, people are just listening to a cold piece of wax, and it either makes it or it don't, you know? And I said, well, yeah, that's good. I like that. You know, he was he, was, he came from the gospel field, and he was just looking for feel. He was just, it had to feel good, and that's, that's the records I try to make. I try to make, uh, you know, music that feels good to me. I feel if it feels good to me, then there's going to be X amount of people that might, uh, you know, respond to it as well. Have you felt the need to experiment over the years to to just try it? I mean, you've worked with a lot of different artists. Obviously, you, you discovered some of them, but you also have worked with some, I think of some work you did with, uh, I guess, with Janet Jackson back in the 90s, and that's not someone people would naturally think you'd you'd be with. Is that something you still look for? You want to work with different people? Oh, it's exciting to work with creative people. You know, it's uh, the unknown. I like, you know, art is something that really strikes me hard it's it's a mystery you know what is that thing that like when you hear a record on the radio and you get goosebumps and you can't really identify it. what the heck is that what are the what's that combination is it the melody is it the rhythm is it the singer is it you know or when you're listening to jazz and you just you hear a miles davis record and you say geez i like that guy i don't why do i like him so much you know, you can't really pinpoint. You can't identify. I played with Louis Armstrong one uh, one night at a on a TV show, and Louis was um, he was magic. He, he he had something that was really uniquely special because his personality came right through the horn. Other than that, what I couldn't identify what I liked about him. I mean, I I liked the space between the notes. I liked the notes he chose, but. You know, it's 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 in the mystery realm, and I, that goes for all the arts as well. You you walk in front of a great sculpture, and you and and it and it touches you. Why? Hmm. Uh, what? The shape? The color? The you know? If you, if you stand in front of a Jackson Pollock painting and you try to analyze it, you're going to blow it. You won't you won't get it because art is a feel, and that's uh, the beauty part of it. Have you ever thought about what uh, it feels like to make music that that you enjoy? but that others really love to know that people are listening to your music and when they do, they're usually deriving pleasure from it? Well, it gives me pleasure to know that they're doing that, but, you know, the one that gets the most pleasure out of my music is me. (laughs) (laughs) In the old days, you know, you go in the studio and you record with musicians live and uh, you make a record. And now it's, uh, you know, it's a completely different way of, of making records and selling records and exposing. I mean, I did an album on whipped cream and other delights but a re-whipped it was a, mm. taking those songs and 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 doing variations on those songs and the guy who had the idea said why don't we get these great mixers around the country and have them you know work with you mix the record in a different way and put put some ad- other you know additives to it and put your trumpet on it so okay so i did that but i was these guys would send me a a, a file a musical file I would put my trumpet on it. I would send them back just the trumpet. I never met these guys. I did an album with musicians I never met. I mean, they could have been in Afghanistan and would have amounted to the same thing. So many of your hits and what people know you for are for great instrumentals. And it seems like these days, and even more so than it used to be, it's so much based on on the singer and that sound as opposed to 
instrumental. Do you think we're missing something by not having, where instrumental is almost sort of put away to the side of, well, if you like jazz, you can listen to instrumental, otherwise you won't. It seems like there used to be more mainstream pop, we'd hear more instrumental. What do you think about that? Uh, I think you just hit the nail right directly on the head. I mean, it's one of the problems that instrumental artists are having these days. It's very pigeonholed. You know, you have, unless you have certain elements on the record, the radio is very stingy. that They're not willing to play it. So instrumental music is uh, kind of a lost art at the moment. It needs somebody to come come around and, uh, you know, shake it up like the Tijuana Brass did years ago. Right. Your music with the Tijuana Brass, especially without question, fits the word iconic, and it was so much fun to listen to. Could it have been as much fun making it as it was to listen to? Absolutely. I mean, I... I always felt if it's fun to play, it's going to be fun to listen to. That's the music that I try to make. You know, when I had the Lonely Bull, and this was before your time, I'm sure, this was 1962, that was the record that started A&M Records, and I had an opportunity. I could either make the the Lonely Bull sideways and do variations on the Lonely Bull, or or keep trying to you know stretch out and and do different things. And that's what I tried to do. Obviously, it, it was successful. But uh, I'll tell you, uh, Steve, that uh, luck and timing play such an important part in the success of an artist. You know, if you're there at the right time with the right song at the right moment. <laughs> Uh, it, it can break through. But if the timing's off, but you got the talent and everything else, is, it's not going to uh, fall in place as easily. You've been famous. You've been a much-admired talent and person for five decades at least. And you also seem to have enjoyed it. So I guess I wonder, as a lot of people don't seem to, could you explain a little bit how it feels to be that famous and at the same time enjoy your fame, feel like you've been lucky and blessed? Well, I've been lucky and blessed. I don't even think about the fame for a, a, a nanosecond. It's, it's not even an, a, an issue for me. I, it's it's not it's not what I was striving for. You know, when kids come up to me and say, you know, what's the key to success? You know, I think that one word, passion. Unless you're passionate about wanting to be a musician, wanting to be a dancer, a poet, a, a singer, whatever it is, you, you know, unless you're passionate about it, forget it, because... While you're sleeping, other people are practicing who want you know the very same thing you do. So don't do it for any other reasons. It's not about uh, you know trying to get the the prettiest girl in in school. It's about you know doing something that really gives you pleasure. And you know I wake up in the morning all excited about you know sculpting and painting and and actually practicing the horn. I'm I'm doing it. You know I just put the horn down to 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 talk to you and. Uh, getting ready to do these concerts, but while I, you know, practice, it's like, uh, you never get to the place where you, where you think you're, you're finished. You know, Dizzy Gillespie was a good friend of mine, and Dizzy used to say, he said, the, 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 the closer I get, the farther it looks. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a favorite or two of yours of, of the latest album that, uh, that you'd like people to hear a little bit more of? You know, I did something that, uh, George Harrison. that George Harrison wrote. What I try to do is play the lyric through the instrument. And just as a look-see, I mean, you can, you can really feel that in, in uh, the way I play uh, something.
And that was music legend Herb Alpert, which was one of our favorite conversations of 2016. We recorded it back in March. Thanks very much for listening to today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. And thanks to those of you who've been with us at any point in the nearly 11 years I've hosted this program here on 91.5. Thanks also to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Stina Sieg for their help on today's program. And additional thanks go out to Paul Atkinson, Nick Blumberg, Brie Valdivia, and Mark Brody. If you missed any of our programs, you can go online later today to kjzz.org and enjoy them once again or even for the first time. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day and a happy 2017. It's 12 o'clock.